Namaste, everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. My guest today is Brad Palumbo. Brad, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thank you. So, Brad, uh, before we get into analyzing libertarianism, uh, I'll request you to tell everybody to tell uh, them a bit about yourself, your background, uh, what exactly are you up to these days? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm an American political journalist. I live in Washington, D.C. I write a lot about kind of free market economics, uh, electoral politics, the 2020 election, uh, and a little bit more on the philosophical side, too. Uh, but I'm, I'm a journalist and writer. I come from an opinion perspective, not kind of an objective news background, uh, very much with the kind of libertarian conservative leanings that, that you mentioned. Uh, and that's basically what I, what I do. I've written for national publications like USA Today and National Review. I've been on Fox News, a bunch of other shows like that. So that gives you a general sense. All right. So, Brad, here's the thing. So, so you made a very poignant point there that you said uh, you're more on the opinion side. So so when you said the opinion side, it's more uh, into, let's say, the deep dive into the policy aspect of things or let's say the yeah. moral or the ethical aspects of things. Right. Uh, am I getting you right? Yeah, I don't I don't want your, your listeners to think that I'm an objective news reporter. I'm not. I write I work for I work for a magazine. I write opinion columns and articles. And so I'm I'm making moral and, and arguments on the merits of things uh, from my point of view. All right. So, Brad, let's get into libertarianism. So let's say somebody knew nothing about it. Uh, let's go by the assumption uh, a, a person who's going to listen to this podcast actually does not know what libertarianism is. So how would you tell people uh, uh, a basic, you know, kind of 101 on libertarianism? Sure, I can do it in four words. Um, individual liberty and small government. Basically, uh, a libertarian is going to have as one of their first principles, the thing that's most important them to politics, the rights of the individual to live free, uh, whether that's freedom of speech and being free of censorship, whether that's the freedom to defend yourself uh, with Second Amendment rights here in the United States, uh, freedom from all sorts of a kind of government intrusions or other people hurting you or taking your stuff, uh, to put it simplistically. And then small government is basically how you'd sum up the policy view in that, in my view of libertarianism, is not anarchist, right? It's not that we believe in no government of any kind or uh, abolish everything, but it's that there should be a, a, a modest role for government that's focused on the core, the core values of protecting property, protecting life, so policing military, defense, courts, uh, and some other stuff, but not a lot, because generally we believe that free markets uh, and capitalism and individuals working on their own can achieve better outcomes than what we've seen here in the U.S., which is a lot of kind of failed bureaucratic stagnation and overregulation and red tape. All right. So so this is the interesting part, right? When we talk about freedom, so it's very interesting that the word freedom itself means multiple things to multiple people. Now, here's the thing. When, mm-hmm. I, and I, when I tend to follow left-wing journalists or left-wing thinkers in America, it's not like they say they're anti-freedom. They, they kind of come from a point of view that, oh, we also believe in freedom. But here's the reason we need more government intervention so that we ensure that you guys get more freedom, which is kind of, uh, kind of counterintuitive at times to me as a person who himself, you know, leans more libertarian at, at a personal level. But then how do you convince a person that what what the kind of freedom they're talking about from a left-wing perspective is not really freedom? 
Right. So you're 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 making a good point here, and there's a big difference between the two views of freedom: freedom from or freedom to. So there's what what we would call a negative right, which is what I believe in is I have the freedom from in that freedom from government censorship, freedom from you punching me in the face. But that's different from what we would call a positive right, which would say I have the freedom to life and healthcare, and it's a human right. And that's freedom requires you to give me your time and resources and property. That is a very problematic vision of freedom, in my view, not because the people who espouse it are bad people or have bad intentions, but because in every historical example, when we see kind of this positive rights mantra, you can go back and read the Constitution of the Soviet Union, uh, and it, it will say every person has a right to food. Every person has a right to life, a right to housing, and therefore, that's why we must make the state all powerful to secure those rights. But then when you make the government extremely powerful, uh, it ends up hurting those same individuals that it was supposed to help. And it doesn't actually work out to the benefit of those people because it's inher- power is inherently corrupting and centralized power is inherently corrupting. No human being, I believe as a kind of conservative philosophically, that human beings are fallible and imperfect. And no person can handle centralized power without being corrupted unless you have uh, kind of the most pure, perfect person in the world. But those are the kinds of people who tend not to succeed in politics, at least in the U.S., because here succeeding in politics requires flexible ethics, uh, a a great lying face uh, (laughs) and a a real tendency to raise money uh, behind closed doors. Those don't tend themselves to be people who can be trusted with unlimited power. And that's what you get when you start talking about freedom as something the government must secure for us all by having more power. That that's interesting. So so where would you come from a Rawlsian positive discrimination uh, angle? So so you know John Rawls who, who yeah. had this idea of positive discrimination, and he would say that in some cases. So so let me lay it out to you, and then maybe we can go into different areas. So uh, so when I used to live in in Canada, and obviously I have used to study there, and then I came back, and obviously when I came back to India, I I had a lot of libertarian leanings myself. So so let me lay it out to you. So. When I used to live in Canada, uh, this is what I used to do. I mean, I would visit America all the time. I have family there. So this is my opinion. So I used to look at a very established society, a very rich society, uh, the average per capita income. If uh, if I know uh, my numbers right in America, I think it's around $60,000 or $65,000. Uh, Sounds or about something. right. Yeah, in that range. Well, and then I come back to India and... Uh, when I came back to my country, I had all these ideas on, you know, the government should just leave us alone, let people do, uh, till the extent of being an anarcho-capitalist. I mean, uh, till the extent of you're going and say, oh, why do we need the police too? Yeah, I mean, I was at that range. Obviously, uh, I would call my uh, myself going through the wannabe phase where I just found, uh, you know, uh, government to be useless in almost anything. And then I started living in my country in about 2010 when I got into activism of some sort in India where, you know, I started working on some issues, maybe going to rural India or maybe the slums in my city where I live in Mumbai. And I saw that, you know, there's so much poverty in India, in a country like India, where the average income is like $2,300 to $2,500. And, and if the government or if the state let's use the word the state if the state does not interfere in many areas to lift these people up uh and i'll bring in a specific example of what you guys call in america affirmative action 
and what we call in a very different way it doesn't exactly fit into something like affirmative mm-hmm. action in in america but it's called reservations in india so how it happens is obviously india has a particular past right india had a past where hindu society was divided into different castes and uh, historically yeah. the low, yeah, lower castes were you know discriminated against vehemently and it it sent them back so far back financially socially in terms of their education levels in terms of their confidence in terms of you know getting a basic foothold into society that when india became a modern democratic republic the then politicians came up with this idea of reservations where basically they started with the idea of the people who were declared uh, the untouchables at that time according to the survey done by the britishers that x percentage of the population would get you know reservations like fixed quotas it's like a proper quota in in, in government jobs uh, or jobs uh, are allocated by the state now the the libertarian would say that's wrong right a libertarian would say that's not the right way of dealing with things but my experience of living in india working actively even with a member of parliament in india and going around i see just too many positive results for something like that now i'm going to draw the parallel and i know uh, the first comeback would be well you know lower castes are like 70% in india and african americans are like 10 to 12% in india at max mm-hmm. but even if i said that and if i check correct the number why would a program like affirmative action and i know the american courts have actually struck down affirmative action pretty much so i'm aware of that but what i'm trying to understand is why is there resistance to something like that and what would be the libertarian critique of of a policy like this whether in india or in america right there's a lot there so let me start by rewinding to the beginning beginning of what you were saying first off in terms of how libertarianism applies to a a lower income or developing country Um you know I'm not super familiar with the the specifics of India but I have some thoughts about this in general right because one of the things that's been really wonderful to see is there's so much you know gloom and doom in the headlines but if you go back and you look at absolute poverty rates you know the percentage of people in the world that's living on $2 or less a day uh compare 1980 to 2020 you have seen drastic improvements billions of people lifted out of poverty and my background's in economics so i can tell you what economists attribute most to that success is the spread of market capitalism and free trade to more places across the world so we also have to think about the united states you're absolutely right that the united states is a, a wealthy country um but it wasn't always i mean the united states is a, a relatively young country in the grand scheme of things uh and and it's always been much more libertarian due to our constitution than our european peers so why is it that in our 300 odd years in existence the united states has reached this pinnacle of of success in many ways whereas some other countries haven't even though they've been around for a thousand years or or 500 years or whatever it may be well i would say that that a having a a a framework of government that is libertarian in its orientation and sets up individual rights for people to succeed uh it, it is the engine of prosperity and i think that's borne out by global data and trends to talk specifically about the example uh that you raise i think it is it is a complicated question right how do you how do you address historical injustice and it's, it's the what we have here in the united states is is different from a caste system but obviously we have an ugly legacy of slavery in this country and Af- with african americans and the problem with if you asked me today do i support reparations i would say no for a few reasons um and 
it's not because I think there wasn't a historical injustice. There absolutely was. And I do think it still affects to life today. But to me, there's something fundamentally morally wrong with um, punishing people, which is what you would be doing if you're redistributing resources or favoritism or anything like that, who weren't born. Like I'm obviously white, but I wasn't born in uh, before the civil the civil war and involved in slavery, right? And your state would be enforcing policies on me for consequences of things that my generations ago of people that looked like me did. And they would be giving benefits to people who are generations removed from this stuff. Not that that means they're not affected, but it's not as if they were themselves the victims of it. Reparations should have been done immediately after the civil war, given every person compensation. That would be a different thing. But when you're talking decades, uh, centuries later, it becomes much more complicated too. Because for example, what do you do with mixed race people? What do you do with people who are second generation immigrants from Africa? They're black, but they weren't slaves. Their family wasn't slaves in the United States. What do you do with people who are second generation Swedish immigrants and they're white and they don't pay, they, they weren't involved in slavery, but should they be paying reparations? So it gets messy quick. And this gets me to kind of my, my main point that I would compare to your example that you raised. Fundamentally, programs like affirmative action or reparations, or I'm, I'm guessing the caste systems um, counterbalancing effect, the reservations that you mentioned, ultimately they reinforce the divides between those groups. So yeah. what I would like to see is a society where black and white become largely meaningless and in, fade into the background of American life. And I, without knowing a ton about the situation in India, I think that's probably the goal too, right? Is that castes no longer matter. We all move on from it. And you can't solve discrimination in the past with discrimination in the present because, in my opinion, it reinforces the group divides and reinforces group identity when what we really want is to all be Americans, to all be Indians, and to move on from this stuff. So that, that's my view on that one. All right. So th that's interesting. But here, the, and a counter to that maybe would be that sometimes in life that people are just so far down the social ladder they are uh i don't know how to put it other than they're just the sinkhole that they're in is so deep that maybe the free market may not be good enough for them it, it could there be a situation of that sort in your opinion look i'm not an anarchist so i don't believe in no government support for for example the disabled um, or poor women with children in the United States. I don't oppose basic government programs that provide food stamps to disabled people or people who are truly indigent, indigent. But the problem is that we've expanded in the United States far, far beyond that. I mean, we have an unemployment insurance system that was paying 70% of recipients more to not work than to go to work. So it's not to abolish the entire welfare state, have no social support for anyone, but it's just that at least here in the U.S., we're so far removed from even close to a free market that we need to go back in that direction. The other thing I can say, too, is that uh, government action, at least in a wealthy nation like the United States, crowds out private sector charitable action. So one thing that we see here is that the more the government takes responsibility for these things and the more they raise taxes to attempt to fix these things, uh, the less that people donate to private charities, even though private charities are much more effective and efficient 
than the government. Part of the problem is that the government can only the government could spend like $10 million to put up a light bulb. Like they have this, that's exaggeration, right? But I've covered throughout my career time and time again, examples of, oh, I'm trying to think of a good one, but like uh, the US government spent millions of dollars on frog mating, studying frog mating calls. <laughs> and like um, all these other ridiculous examples of, of government waste get uncovered every single year. So it's just not an effective way to address a problem when you're trying to have centralized bureaucrats in, in Washington, D.C., or I guess you could say in the capital of India, trying to make rules for this vast population across the country. If you are going to have any government involvement, it should be at the local level. Because in libertarian thought, there's something kind of called the Hayekian knowledge problem, where it's that only the people closest to a situation have enough knowledge to make good decisions. So when you have centralized planners and regulators in a capital somewhere trying to make rules for the entire country, they're doomed to fail. It doesn't matter if they're the most brilliant minds. It doesn't matter if they have the purest of intentions. They can't in Washington, D.C., they can't make rules that will solve the problems in Alabama, Texas, in California and Rhode Island, all across different parts of the country. They don't understand the situations, whereas decentralized systems that leave decision makings up to the individual or to the local community allow for a much better outcome that will take into account all the factors and information. And that's why generally as a rule, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical of any centralized efforts or, or top-down control. Yeah, uh, it, it makes sense. So so from the Indian experience, so so let me put it this way. So we were, we're still a very left-wing society. Uh, I, I know people find it hard to believe. Like every time I talk to, you know, thinkers or, or think tank members in America and they say, oh, so BJP is like the right-wing party in Indiana. I was like, have you seen their policies? <laughs> That's all I can say. I was like, if if uh, so, I I love I love to play this game with folks, right? So what I do is I'll say like I'm gonna give you three policy documents, right? I'm gonna remove the name of the political outfit, and here's the thing: you have to tell me which political outfit made those policy uh, instructions. And and when they read them, they're like, yeah, it seems like a left wing outfit. And I was like, one of them is BJP, which you call right wing. And I was like, you guys don't realize uh, how Indian politics works, and so this comes to the issue. Now, in 1990s, India was kind of forced to open up its markets, right? India basically got bankrupt. The country went bankrupt and they, they had no choice. They had to open up the market. And yes, a lot of good things that have come in our life are because of capitalism. Albeit, uh, it's a very weird sort of capitalism, the Indian version, which, uh, uh, which I don't know how far. I think we have a long way to go, to be very honest, personally. But... Now, here's my proposal to you. Now, why is this problematic is what I want to hear to you. So uh, whenever I've had discussions uh, with my libertarian friends in the West, I always tell them, uh, what should be the criteria? Why is there rigidity? So, uh, I don't know. I always see uh, this rigidity in libertarians. I'm not saying you uh, per se. I'm just saying in general, when I have discussions with libertarians, it comes down to no, the government by default, the default assumption is the government is bad. And my counter to them is always that, why does the default assumption has to be have to be that the government is bad? The default assumption should be that every set of problems can be gauged on an efficiency parameter, right? Let's say uh, if we are setting up a telecom company. Now, if there is a telecom company, it has to work under certain parameters. It has to make X amount of money, X amount of growth. It has to deliver services at X amount of time, ABC. Now, if that parameter is met, why does it matter if it's owned by the government or the private entity? What am I missing here? 
Yeah, so I think you're tapping into something that's real, which is there's a, a strain of libertarians that are kind of so, they're like anarchists. They're like so dogmatically anti-all government. And I'm not like that. I don't believe in that. I believe in kind of a a small government, but not a no government. I think the problem, though, is twofold. Um, and, and with what you're describing is that, sure, if you had a hypothetical government-run company that was just as efficient as a private sector company, sure, there'd be no problem with that. The problem is that, that there's that's a lot less likely, uh, theoretically and in practice. And that's because of kind of some conceptual incentive structures, right? Like there's no prof- profit motive there is no efficiency driver in a government agency. I can tell you, I'm here in Washington, D.C. I know people that work in all our big bloated agencies, the Department of Education, the Department of Agriculture, the Environmental Protection Agency. It takes forever to get anything done. It's impossible to get fired or to fire a bad employee. And there's just it doesn't matter how well they do because taxpayers don't have a choice whether to fund them or not. Right. So whereas compare and contrast that to a private enterprise where the owner of that enterprise has every incentive to cut costs wherever possible, to be as efficient as possible so they can make more money, uh, to lower prices, to steal competition away from other companies, uh, to they have a strong incentive to provide a high quality service because there's competition. Government is inherently a monopoly on most of the things they do. And monopolies, private or public, are bad. They don't serve company uh, customers well. The difference is that the private sector, when left without government interference, only rarely results in monopolies, whereas government is always a monopoly when it takes over an industry. So it's like you can't expect a government agency to provide a service well when there's no profit motive, there's no budgetary fire under their asses making them do a good job or make ends meet. Uh, uh, basically, if a business provides a poor service or fails to to be efficient, it goes under, it goes bankrupt and, and a new one comes along that, and that does, does it well and takes its place. In the government, they just keep existing and they just keep taking more money from the taxpayer. And ironically enough, they often just, when the worse they do, the more money they say they need to do better. So it creates this horrible spiral. And that's how you ended up with bloated, dysfunctional big government, which is what we have here in the U- U.S., So here's a follow-up to that. So this is very interesting, actually. So let's continue with the the cell phone company example. Now, in India, so here's the thing. And here's where libertarianism, uh, I believe, has to be very cautious and should be conscious of the geography of the region. Now, let's say you live in America. I mean, your neighbors are Mexico and Canada. Canada, I, mean, I know Americans joke about Canada being the 51st state. <laughs> and and, and you know, it's it's the best neighborhood to be around in terms of a geopolitical perspective, right? Yeah. Now let's let's look at India. <laughs> a little more complicated there. Yeah. Lo and behold, we have Pakistan, China. Uh, we, have, we have problems. Uh, we have problems all around us, basically. Let's just put yeah. it that way. Now in a scenario like this, now let's say you live in a border area, right? Now, would you want a private company to have a cellular network in that from a national security perspective in a border area, let's say in India, Pakistan or India, China? That's a very serious problem from a national security perspective. 
Now, how do we manage around that scenario? Because, I mean, I, I, everybody knows how much India and Pakistan love each other. And these days, you know, China is just showering so much love and India is showering so much love back at China. It's just it, we, as if we did not have one border problem. Now we have two border problems. So, so how does libertarianism deal with a problem like that? Well, national security is always a genuine cause for government involvement. Um, I guess what I'd say is, I don't necessarily understand what the issue is in terms of the company being private. What would matter is that the government is stepping in to protect the company, to make sure they're not doing anything illegal with the foreign government, that they are secure in their rights, uh, that the basically the job for the government there would be border security, which I fully believe in, and to be limiting what these prosecuting anyone who betrayed India and worked with with China to undermine India or anything. So it's like, to me, it's not that the state needs to control the businesses or control the society as much as it needs to take the first and foremost role in national security. And that's something absolutely that even libertarians believe the state is responsible for national defense. All right. So let me put it this way. So I'll give you an even more tangible uh, scenario. Let's say you have a big telecom company. You have a border skirmish with China. And that company has a 20%, 27%, 30% stake of Tencent or Huawei in their entire company setup. Now, how does one solve that? You see what I'm trying to get? Sometimes, because you live in a global world, like let's face what's happening in America. Why has America banned Huawei in, in almost everything? They have banned it. Now, in an ideal world, in a capitalist world, it doesn't matter. The best and the cheapest and the most efficient should win. I now, don't. Here, I disagree. Sorry. Let me jump in there. That's from sure. a libertarian point of view. National security is a valid reason to ban a product. So a anarcho-capitalist society would say whatever product anytime. But I support, for example, the ban on Huawei on, uh, and also on um, – TikTok, I, I hope they can work something out, but at the end of the day, maybe they would need to ban it because the free market has a set of rules that the government is responsible for safeguarding. One of those rules is national security. So when there is a genuine national security threat, it is fully libertarian for the government to limit entry to the country of a company that's going to undermine the national security of the United States because it's owned in part or subject to the control of the Chinese Communist Party, which is our enemy, really, in the global power conflict. Um, and so I think that's part of the point there. The problem is that oftentimes national security is used not just in valid examples, like what you're pointing exactly. to, then what they're then they use it for everything. For example, yeah. President Trump has used national security to justify tariffs on all sorts of goods. And far beyond the kind of narrow, actual national security threat, he calls them all national security and just uses trade war everywhere. And I yeah. don't support tariffs. They're anti-free market and anti-capitalist. They're attacks on consumers. And so the problem is not that there aren't valid instances where national security justifies intervention, but that, that politicians will start calling everything national security and they'll expand their power and get more involved in the economy. And that's, that's a real problem for us, at least in terms of our policy. And I imagine the same thing could happen in India. Yeah, and, and this is what I'm trying to get. And so that's why it should be on a case-by-case case case basis, right? Because sure. there is an asymmetry somewhere, right? It's not like when we are analyzing things at a global perspective. Like there is a clear-cut case 
for Huawei, right? There is a clear-cut case in the case of Huawei. Like you just admitted, you don't know, uh, can TikTok be... Like, we banned TikTok in India. Not only TikTok, we have banned like 200-plus Chinese apps in India. Now, here's the thing. Uh, in an ideal world, they'll be like, oh, why did you ban TikTok? It was so nice. A lot of people were, you know, content creators, and they were making money off TikTok. But then the counter-argument to that would be so simple. What? It's just an app. Another company will come up, and they'll take the space in the market. They could be from anywhere else in the world other than China. And we'll go back to status quo over a period of time. But the problem is it doesn't end there, right? And that's the fine line. How do we decide that line? And in, in that case, like I said, it, shouldn't efficiency be the only criteria then? I mean, I certainly think efficiency is an important criteria. And so is security, like you mentioned. How do we draw the line? It's a hard question. And uh, that's no one's going to do it perfectly, especially politicians who are going to weigh mostly the political interests. Uh, one thing that I've really struggled with here in the U.S. is that we have a valid national security threat from things like TikTok, but we, but actual citizens, like I'm from the younger generation, they don't care. They don't care that China is is combing through their data and could blackmail them with it or could use it to interfere in the elections. They're like, LOL, we just want TikTok. And so it is hard when you have the government, for example, the government can only do so much. For example, even if President Trump banned TikTok, most people would just get a VPN and use it. So most young people very easily. So it's a problem. And I, I'm sitting here not telling you I have a, a clear solution for it. But like how uh, there are some serious problems with kind of international commerce when you have truly bad actors like the Chinese communist regime. Uh, the way they engage in global commerce is a problem. But let I, what I can say is that the answer doesn't have to always be more government. It can also be more capitalism and more free trade because the, one of the best ways to decouple the U.S. and China's economy would be to sign a bunch of free trade deals with India, with Vietnam, with other countries that can provide us with goods and services instead of China. If we eliminate tariffs and have a mutually beneficial economic relationship with other countries, then you can um, solve a little bit of this issue with over-reliance on China, given the regime's bad practices, without having to resort to things like tariffs or government restrictions that, that, that have real serious costs. So, so somebody might counter you, Brad, and say that, but wasn't that the plan with China in the first place? And we give them business, we give them trade, and the Chinese mend their ways. But hasn't America, by giving them trade, making them rich, actually created a monster, which is in a very weird way, now a pain in the ass for the Americans? I mean, yes. If frankly, like one of the free trade doctrines was that free trade will promote democracy, will promote human rights, it will promote... Uh, advanced societies. So by opening up with trade with China, we would make them better. And but what I'll say is this, that has happened in many, many cases. China is the a big exception. It hasn't worked out this time. And that's true. Um, I'm That just shows you that nothing is perfect and no dogma can hold 100% correct all the time. I certainly acknowledge that. But it, well, the thing is, though, we have a lot of countries like India that are good countries that we have shared values with that we should reward with better trade contracts and deals. Uh, and, and even the United Kingdom, we have a lot of shared values. They're a democratic society with human rights, yet we have a lot of trade barriers with them. We should sign a massive deal with them to open up trade. And so it's almost like 
we rewarded China in the hopes that they would improve their behavior while leaving on the books a lot of restrictions and anti-trade things with countries that already are on the right track. And so that's what doesn't make sense to me. All right. So this is a perfect segue to now get out of the economics into the social realm. Oh, gee. And... <laughs> so here's where. So so when I listen to you, Brad, what I listen, uh, the words coming out of your mouth and in my head, it's going. So he's making a moral argument, too, because what you're saying is you use the word shared values. Now, free market capitalism by itself is pretty much without models, right? It's very, pretty simple. There is a profit motive, the most efficient wins, and that's the end of the story as far as the economics is well, concerned. Well, it reflects the morals of the the citizenry because they all vote in the marketplace with their business. Yeah, they do. That, that, fair enough. That, I, I'll, I'll grant you that. But here's the thing. But when you go with a laissez-faire attitude, with a society that doesn't share your social values, and then you let them grow in a very weird way, you actually are incentivizing in a very weird way immorality. You're incentivizing you know, the growth of value structures. Look, trade is, at the end of the day, whether we like it or not, homo sapiens are uh, interconnected species, right? Every mm -hmm. aspect of our life, the social and the economic, the, no, I'm personally a disbeliever, but I, I would never say that, you know, religion has no role to play in society. That would be just a, a you know, a lie. If I was to say religion is the most strong meme that, that in, you know, infects our entire society. So here's the thing. Now, here's the classic case. As you said, U.S. should be doing more trade with India. But the reason U.S. should be doing more trade with India is actually a value judgment because both our countries are democracies. We believe in freedoms. Now, that's where the libertarian argument comes into some interesting areas, right? So, so it's, it's until and unless you don't share your freedoms or you share your values or there is no asymmetry. The problem is of asymmetry. If one side doesn't do it and the other does, you run into problems, right? So, yes, sort of, but it, it is, it's kind of a question of weighing your options. And so even if you have a country that's like, for example, Russia. Russia does not share our values. But should we still trade with Russia? I would say yes. And there's a few reasons why. So, I mean, we shouldn't trade with them if they're going to engage in specific trade practices that threaten national security, like we've talked about. But but as general rule, it's not we shouldn't embargo every country with bad values. We should still seek to have an exchange of goods and services. For one reason, I know that the thesis has kind of failed when it comes to free trade automatically making a society become more freer and more democratic. What it does do, though, is, is economic ties reduce the chance of war. That's just true. I mean, in the last 50 years, as global trade has spread and the world has become interconnected, we have seen fewer outright wars. And the, the United States, for example, is a lot less likely to end up in a, a war with China or Russia that would be disastrous for everyone involved when we have goods and services and people that do flow across the borders. The other thing, too, is that just because a country as a, as a regime or as a government doesn't share our values, that doesn't mean that citizens don't. So, for example, the people of Hong Kong are subject to China's, the Chinese regime's horrible values, but they share American values. So, to some extent, it can't, it can't be viewed as as simple as 
does this country or does this country not? Because certain areas or certain people, that's why I think even we should take immigrants from uh, places like Hong Kong, even though China is not does not share our values. We should take immigrants from Russia if there are immigrants that would do well in our society and want a chance at freedom. Those things to me are good, even when there is asymmetrical values between a nation. Now, here's the other thing. I take your point about how you are in some way at helping advance a nation economically, therefore promoting their bad values. But to decouple with them, to put up trade barriers or to shut yourself off to them would be to sabotage your own economy, to make your own taxpayers pay more, to make them pay tariffs, to make your economy grow slower, to have your economy have fewer jobs. So the alternative involves sabotaging yourself. So if the choice is between economically connecting with China and helping them advance in their regime and its poor values, but also helping us advance in our regime that has good values uh, and our system growing, I think that's probably better than having both parties be worse off. Do you, so I guess I, I, your point is taken, but I'm not sure it fundamentally changes the game for me. Yeah, because uh, so I, I kind of get what you're coming from uh, because here's another example, America and Saudi Arabia. Now we all know Saudi Arabia has some pretty bad social norms. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think women are allowed to drive now or albeit with a male partner. I don't know. I'm not going to make a judgment on that because I'm not for, for sure. But yeah, apostasy and blasphemy are, you know, death penalty. there is a death penalty in uh, many of those countries which would not fly in uh, India or America, although India has a blasphemy law, which I think is ridiculous. Uh, yeah. I just, yeah, it's, it's, it's garbage in my opinion. But the point is that in in a weird way, you know, I always use this analogy of, uh, you know, free will and Michael Shermer makes a beautiful argument. He says, you know, when it comes on the subject of free will, there are degrees of freedom. So in that weird sense, there are degrees of value structures that you can work around with. And when you look at the meta level, right? So you, So if you look at the micro level, you might find values that I'm sure India has a lot of bad values too that may not uh, be okay with America and vice versa. India might have a lot of problems with American values. But then when you look at the meta level, you might say, okay, in that case, uh, I think I can live with most of the things that these guys believe in and let's do trade with them. Maybe in my view, I think China as a society right now is just far more of a threat. And I believe that there should be less and less trade with them. But that could be my wrong analysis or my bias. I'm more than uh, willing to accept that. And maybe that's where we might go in slightly different ways. Like I have always been a promoter. Like I I used to be very irritated when, you know, obviously I was not born, so I can't control it. But Indra Gandhi, the, the former prime minister of India, was very anti-America. And she had very bad relations with America and uh, vice versa. Even the Americans had very bad relations with India for some odd reason. And, you know, this, this thing has built after the 2000, maybe the Bush regime was the first one. So where... So how do you, what, what do you think about this? That maybe sometimes you get confused in the micro realities and the meta realities. I think it's a valid point. I think it's true because every country is complex and has different layers to their society. And it is a question of, of like you said, like the big picture. There's a, there's a lot about India that, and America that's fundamentally different, but it's a kind of a question of the, at the big picture, it's almost simplistic, but are they on the side for good or the side for evil, the side for like freedom or the side for 
statism and authoritarianism. And increasingly in global politics, people are going to have to pick one side. I'm glad you brought up Saudi Arabia because it's an interesting example. I find the social politics of Saudi Arabia abhorrent. Um, does that mean the U.S. should not trade with them? No. But here's one thing, for example. Why we arm them and give them weapons that are then used to kill civilians, I think is wrong. That's an example where even if there's a financial transaction to be made, the government should say morally we're not going to be party to that, right? Because they're engaged in uh, obviously conflict in Yemen and other places where they have killed civilians with U.S. made weapons. And so even if there's a deal made or a transaction, we should sell them somewhere else, even if it means slightly less money for the morality of that. But at the same time, I don't see what would be served by saying we're not going to sell them Coca-Cola. I mean, I don't see how that, like, how that would hurt our cause or our values to not do that. So it can also be a question of not are we going to be party with this, with this nation or not, but how are we going to be? in which sectors, in which goods, in which transactions. And so that's, for example, even with China. I mean, I don't think we should stop buying T-shirts from China. I think we should probably stop <laughs> buying any technology or apps that they're going to use to spy on us. But that's what you mean. It's like you said, case by case. We're going to have to take that with our approach to worldwide economic engagement too. But I would hope that we could err on the side of interconnectedness and commerce and growth and only on those cases where there's a true reason for moral or national security reasons to intervene, only then do we should we put up barriers. Yeah, I agree with you. So, so I guess what you're saying is that uh, a, a state's value structure and a private enterprise's value structure not does not necessarily need to overlap every time. A private enterprise is a private enterprise. They should have the freedom to work with any country. I mean, a classic case I would be right now is the NBA. The NBA uh, is probably outside of America, I think the biggest market for the NBA right now is China, right? And yeah. it's very interesting that LeBron James would not utter a word about China. And like, if you ask a question to LeBron about China, it's like, China what? China who? I don't know what China is, right? And that's a classic case of a private company putting their financial interests over moral interests. In this case, it's a, it's a very tangible example, but LeBron would maybe speak freely as he should about issues in, in, in inside America. I, I think recently there was a case where the NBA, uh, which is happening right now, and LeBron had said we should walk out and maybe they, they actually cancel a couple of games or because LeBron was pressurizing them. Or maybe later on they cut some deal. They're like, okay, maybe one or two games and then we go on. So this is these are the things. But I guess the NBA is justified. In my view, they are. I mean, people might call it hypocritical. But I think it's fine to be hypocritical because they're a private enterprise. What the state, what should not happen is the state, right? The state should not be hypocritical. So I guess what I would say is like the NBA, I find what they're doing morally repugnant. And so I, as a consumer, will not support it with my business or my views. But I wouldn't say that the, I agree with you. They have the right to do it as a private enterprise. They have a right to, to care about their audience in China and to make money and work with them. And then if that's what people are okay with, their consumers and their customers, then that should be allowed in terms of what the government should do. What I don't think is that we don't have to pair laissez-faire economics with laissez-faire social values in the sense that 
It just has to come from the bottom up rather than the top down. I would be very uncomfortable and really in opposition to the government stepping in and deciding on moral grounds what companies are going to do or be punished for because that's very rife for abuse. And that's not going to be end up in fairness or be representative of the views of society. But one thing that I'd be perfectly fine with is if individuals decide to vote with their dollars. I mean, the NBA and the NFL both have vastly declining ratings in the in America in America with the with the public and that's because they espouse this social justice rhetoric and yet they're hypocrites about it in many ways and they they do a lot of distasteful things that Americans don't like when it comes to how they choose to protest police brutality and I would never say the government should get involved and say no the NBA can't do that or then NFL can't do that but if people want to vote with their wallet and vote with their eyes and not watch and or flip the channel or not purchase a ticket, great. Don't reward their bad behavior. And that's how social change can happen in a way that's consistent with free market values. Uh, whereas the government stepping in is just going to get messy fast. So, yeah. So, so, so now to get into the social realm. So that's a very important distinction you, you make. So a libertarian can never be a moral relativist. A libertarian has to be a moral objectivist in that sense, right? So a libertarian would always say that our objective moral standards and we, we have to live by those moral standards. Or have I have you ever met a relativist libertarian who says... Oh, oh I certainly like, have. No. Oh, oh yeah. that's interesting. So tell a me lot, about them so now. <laughs> a lot of libertarians are um, what I would characterize as socially libertine, whereas oh. they think basically anything that people choose is therefore morally acceptable. So... I think, whereas I'm fundamentally different from that, I view two, two different categories. What is moral and what should be legal are two different categories, right? Because I think every individual, as long as they're not hurting anyone else, should have the right to decide for themselves what they view as moral and how they want to live their life. But that doesn't mean that we as a society or me as an individual have to decide that anything that's legal is therefore moral and okay. Let me give you some examples. I oppose the criminalization of drug use, especially marijuana, um, and I would decriminalize other drug use too because I think the drug war has hurt a lot of people in America and has failed. Uh, and it, it, ultimately, it is a question of their individual freedom, but I think it is morally wrong in that people should not use drugs. And I will advocate that to other people and in the public square. That's different from saying the state needs to crush anyone who disagrees with me and throw them in jail. And even I take the same view on something like prostitution. I think prostitution is morally wrong. I would certainly speak out against it, never encourage anyone to engage in it. But I don't think that we're helped by having policemen arrest prostitutes and throw them in jail. Uh, and also the system that 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 illegal status creates where a prostitute can be beaten and raped by a, a pimp and there's no legal remedy. She can't go to the police or anything. So it's like there can be two separate standards. And I would actually argue that for a libertarian society to succeed or to win the views of the support of the public, you would have to have two different views. You would have to say we support total freedom on the policy questions of what the government will do, but we're still going to promote good values. I think it's interesting because the founding fathers of the U.S. Constitution actually regularly said something like this, like these laws we're creating are will only work for a moral people, right? 
And that's, but that's because the, the law can't force people to be moral. The law can allow people to be free, and then it's up to them to go live morally. And we can all play a part in that. Yeah. Don't you think the fundamental, uh, it's a fundamental assumption when people, uh, with people who believe in more freedom, which are people like you or I, is that we believe in the better angels of our nature. We believe that overall human beings are maybe, on an average, far better than we give them credit for. And uh, the authoritarian tendency stems from the very uh, weird tendency to say that, you know, human beings are fundamentally bad and they need to be controlled. And anybody who thinks human beings are fundamentally bad would, oh, then what do you do? I mean, if you are fundamentally bad, the only way is you either form big religious organization that tries to control you or the big government then uh, tries to control you. Do you think at the moral level, there is this fundamental differentiation in assumptions there? I think there's something to that. I also think that there is um, another category, which is I think people, if left to their own devices, it's kind of the idea of the invisible hand. When everybody goes around about their own individual good on their own, that leads to a collective good that is representative of the actual people. I actually think not that people are inherently bad, but that people in power are inherently bad. I think power corrupts people. And that's why I support small government is that I think people are, are good, but people when put into positions of authority and power on, over others unchecked are naturally corrupted by that because it is a toxifying influence. And that's why you've seen time and time again, it doesn't matter whether it's a Democrat or a Republican or a liberal or a conservative corruption, abuse and fraud in the government. Uh, and I know that India has seen much of the same, right? Uh, Absolutely. So that's why I, I think people left to their own devices won't always pursue morally just ends, but I think they'll get us there a lot quicker than authoritarian or uh, centrally controlling leaders who have this corrupting influence of power. Even if they start with the best of intentions, I mean, that's not going to last very long when they're dictating the whims of people. That's just not how man uh, was meant to live, in my view. So, so what would be uh, at a social and a moral realm would be the differentiating factors, say, between a libertarian and a Republican Party supporter? Well, Republican is kind of a, a big, meaningless tent word at this point. There's a lot of different factions of Republicans. Um, there are There's a faction of Republicans who are more libertarian leaning, and that's kind of where I would place myself. Um, but... There are some Republicans who want to impose morality onto others, kind of traditional social conservatives who want to use the state to promote their idea of morality onto others. And that is a version of Republicanism, uh, whether it is moral or religious values, that is anathema to uh, kind of a libertarian Republicanism. Uh, and that could be represented by the difference between Senator Rand Paul, a libertarian Republican who wants to live and let live, and someone like Senator Josh Hawley a authoritarian Republican who wants to use the state to promote Christian morality. Um, though that's a big difference. And so it's not a Republican distinction so much because the Republican party is a huge tent that has a bunch of factions and a wide range of ideologies at this point. Um, it's a question of the underlying ideology of some conservatives versus some more libertarian Republicans. And it's one that the, the American right is actually fighting it out over. 
in the intellectual and academic and media circles, there's been a long debate over what the future of conservatism in America should be. And the two main schools of thought are what you would call classically liberal or small L libertarian conservatives versus kind of what you would call nationalist conservatives who in, in that has historically not been where the U S is at in its conservative movement, but that's what they have in kind of a European or I, I guess even in India actually where the right wing party is a big government party, but it, yeah. it wants to use the government for different things. Yeah. That is not traditional American conservatism. And that's not what I believe in, uh, but it is what a faction wants to take the direction of the movement in uh, yet, on the other hand, you have kind of, and, and that's the line I would, if you, do you want to use the state for your own ends that are just not the same ends as progressives? Or do you want a free society with a small and limited government that lets individuals live according to their own beliefs and desires? That's the dividing line, uh, in my opinion, between a kind of status conservative and a libertarian conservative or Republican. So, so would you say Trumpism is a in in a very very weird way uh, a deviation from uh, the classical liberal libertarian mindset? Yes, but not a complete deviation either. He's kind of in the middle of those two schools because he's not really uh, whatever you think about Donald Trump. He's not someone who is super ideological and philosophical. He's yeah. kind of like a, a hammer that goes in a bunch of different directions. So on, on some things, he's more libertarian. For example, he's fine with gay people and gay rights and doesn't care. Yeah. And on other things, he's not libertarian. He hates trade and wants to close our borders. Uh, yet on other things, he's libertarian. He wants to cut taxes and deregulate the economy. But yet he also thinks that the government should really intervene into the tech sector. So Trump is kind of an enigma and he kind of is in the middle of these two factions and both of them try to claim him as theirs because he's so popular with the Republican base. Uh, but in reality, I think he's not really in either camp. He's his own thing. Yeah. So, so, but do you think Trumpism is a threat to, uh, you know, small C conservatism or let's say libertarianism in, 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 in a weird way at an ideological level? On some issues, yes. On other issues, no. That, 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 that's a fair assessment, I would say. And yeah. I also think um, the real question of it, it matters what happens with what you've been calling Trumpism is an interesting thing because Trumpism is a different question than Trump. And if, yeah. if Trump loses in November and the Republican Party just kind of moves on from him and goes back to business as usual, that's one thing, right? Then it will be back more in line with more cons traditional conservatism, quote unquote, with some differences. I mean, we're not going back on some issues, uh, but there's another scenario where maybe Trump loses or he wins another term, but then he can't run again, obviously. Um, and a new Trumpy figure with his same views takes his place. Donald Trump Jr. might run yeah. for president uh, or somebody like that. And, or, or maybe Fox News host Tucker Carlson could run and they're the Trumpist ideologue that kind of a, if it became a long-term ideological movement and it kept moving in the direction of nationalism and populism and away from traditional small C conservatism and limited government, that could become an issue. Yeah. A serious threat. Uh, but I don't know that that is what's going to happen. I don't know that it is at all. Yeah. You, you got in Tucker Carlson. I was surprised of the kind of support he has for a universal basic income, which was very interesting. Albeit, you know, even, uh, 
uh, who's the guy? I keep forgetting him, uh, his name, the the kind of godfather of conservative thoughts. And uh, I, I always forget his name. Is it Milton guy, Friedman? Yeah, Milton Friedman was also kind of in favor of some sort of a universal basic income. Yes. But, yeah, so, but yeah, Tucker's move to, you know, uh, being against automation and being against yeah, he's a lot pro of big things. government. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. I, I I was personally surprised at the move. Uh, so one last question, and then I'll maybe take a few questions from the live audience because they're fascinated by by libertarianism. So, abortion is an issue where, like, I'll give you my stand on abortion, and and I think my stand is pretty much I'm very comfortable with the laws that we have in India. I think in India we have now uh, amended the law. Again, people don't realize they call uh, this party right wing, and you know they basically amended a law that increased the abortion limit by two weeks. So yeah, so I have so much for right wing in India. Uh, I, my my thought is always clear. I believe a females uh, a woman should have the right to uh, to you know get an a legal abortion. So in India, how how the law is, I think there are two or three doctors that need to be consulted, and after those two three consultations and after a degree of uh, ebbs and flows, you basically decide whether an abortion can happen or not. Now. Uh, I obviously know, and you know, somebody might come back and say, so how do you decide that arbitrary line? So why does it become a life form at week 20 or week 21? And why is it not a life form at week 18 or week, week 15? Like, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. And nobody has an answer for that. But I think one place where I've always found slight disagreements between what are basically libertarians and even conservatives with libertarian leanings has always been on the issue of abortion. So how, how do they solve that issue? Yeah, it's a question that splits libertarians. And one thing that if you're a libertarian conservative like me, I'm pro-life. I don't believe in, uh, I don't believe in, I mean, I'm not saying all abortion ban, but definitely strong limitations on it, far less than we have now. Uh, because it's a question of libertarians generally think of things in terms of this non-aggression principle. Right. Like my right to swing my fist ends where your face begins. And I think a woman should have complete control over her own autonomy in terms of choosing whether to have sex. Absolutely. That's her right. And anyone who infringes that should be prosecuted under the law. Uh, she, they should have full autonomy when it comes to using birth control or whether when it comes to using condoms or birth control or anything else. Totally should be up to them. Uh and then in terms of abortion, though, it's it's a different question because it no longer just involves their individual rights, I believe. And this is a debated question that, that speaks to deeper values and a, a broader debate that a, a an advanced fetus is a human life. And then there's another party's rights involved. So it becomes a matter of your right to swing your fist ends where my face begins because there's another party involved. And that's why I don't personally view abortion as an individual liberty because it involves violating the rights of another human, another human life. Some libertarians disagree, and that's an intra-libertarian debate. On the libertarian Republican or libertarian conservative side where I am, it is a, a, a strong consensus in a pro-life position. All right. Fair enough. So now let's go to the you know, live viewers questions. So, some, sure. uh, so the first question is how libertarianism uh, policy would work during the bust of an economy, like let's say in a boom or and bust cycle. Is it more Hayek than Keynes? How will it work during a recession? Uh, the perfect time to ask this question. <laughs> it's an amazing time to ask this question. Um, 
One thing that I say is the idea of a Keynesian response to a recession where you're going to run up huge debts and you're going to have the government get you out of the crisis. I'm very skeptical of it. it. I can also say it has not worked in many cases historically in the United States. After the 2008 recession, we had a massive government response, yet it was the slowest economic recovery uh, in American history until President Trump took over. So it really did not respond well to a quick turnaround or to a strong turnaround. Because the question is not like, if should the government do something during a recession? Yes, it should do some things. But if it's just going to spend trillions of dollars, that money has to come from somewhere. So every dollar that the government is spending is a dollar that taxpayers aren't spending in the private sector, that private businesses can't borrow from the pool of available loan money. Uh, so there's no such thing as like free lunch or free intervention into the economy. So anything the government is doing with resources to kind of stimulate the economy is taking resources away from somewhere else where I believe, and most libertarians or free market people would believe, that a business or a, a family is going to spend their money better than Washington, D.C. will spend it. And a lot of the, the Keynesian kind of response that we see ends up going to big bailouts for corporations or it ends up going to waste and fraud and abuse. So I'm very skeptical of those programs. There are other things, though, that the government could do in a recession to loosen up the economy and get it going, uh, like tax cuts, like trade deals, like deregulation, um, lots of ways they could kickstart things. And you know what? There's some role for government. It's not they should do nothing, but whether they should launch sweeping interventions no, I think they shouldn't. And I think even the coronavirus experiment and the monumental failure of the trillions in dollars that they sent shooting out the door uh, and they ended up sending checks to dead people and making welfare pay more than work for 70% of recipients, uh, they shot the economy in the foot in a lot of ways with their big effort to help. And now young people like me are going to be on the hook for trillions of dollars more in debt so maybe we would have been better off if we took a more Hayekian approach to this uh, economic downturn because we've sure been doing the Keynes thing and I don't think it's working. Mm -hmm. So here's the thing. So a lot of my viewers are basically, you know, folks living in India. So a lot of the questions that you're going to get are from a very Indian perspective. So I guess you're going to enjoy it too because it gives you a new way of looking at things. So somebody has asked, right, should there be a free minimum food, school education, and a basic physician access for everyone, rich or poor. So let me explain to you why a lot of people are going to ask you this question who are, who are watching this live, because they've seen a lot of poverty in India. And it stems from their social reality, where when we walk out on the street, Brad, we see poor people all the time. And yeah. it, it has kind of made us numb to the extent that sometimes we just pass by and we don't feel anything and, and it breaks my heart as I say that but the prop point is that there's so much poverty and oh, yes India is becoming better every day thousands of people are coming out of poverty every day but the point is still we have 1.3 billion so in a country like India what would a libertarian say should we give these basic uh, facilities to its citizenry what do you think so I guess the the kind of free market school of thought is that we need to give people a hand up not a hand out and so mm -hmm. there's a big difference between a kind of temporary programs for people on hard by, hard by times that involve work requirements and job training than a perpetual welfare state where anyone can just collect government checks, 
collect free food, collect free housing, collect free cell phones even into just perpetuity. And that's what we have in the United States. I can't speak to the specifics of the Indian system, but if you're asking me, should there be food stamps programs for people who can't afford to eat? Yes, there should also be private charity. And when you have a huge government, there's far less of that. Uh, what there shouldn't be is a built-in, um, we also have to talk about two different groups of people. One group of people is kind of what you would call the indigent, right? Handicapped people, people who cannot work. Then there's another group of people that could be self-sufficient. And with that group of people, the government needs to focus on getting them a job, getting them education, getting them to support themselves. There is that other small group of people, right, where you can make the case there should be some perpetual government programs to take care of them. It's a very small group of people, right? I don't think a truly disabled person, I'm okay with the government funding health care for people who are truly disabled and will never be able to provide for themselves. That's very different from give everyone health care and then just have a massive government program that, that then people don't have to work, they don't have to take care of themselves. Um, so it, it's a big question and there's kind of, but those are the kind of lines of demarcation that I would flesh mm-hmm. out. Yeah, but what about people who are like literally below poverty line? Uh, well, the poverty line here in India are, are very different. So the poverty oh, yeah. in, line- In India, it's like a dollar. Right. So it's kind of a different situation here where the, where the poverty line is $13,000, I believe. Oh. So if you're below, it's not really a comparable situation. Um, yeah. I guess what I'd say is the government in India, I would say, should do something to help people in the short yeah. term, but it should be done with the, I, the goal of getting them to be self-sufficient. Yeah. So it, maybe they need to feed them and house them, and then they should be working to get them jobs. And to have mm-hmm. them take care of themselves. So it's like what they shouldn't do is take them on as kind of the government can't provide a long term solution and just take care of everyone. That's just not realistic. You have to, if you're going to have, I think, truly crisis levels of poverty, of course, I mean, you got to do something in the short term, but it should be done with an eye to the long term of a self sufficient uh, society because otherwise it's not tenable. Yeah. So uh, a question on affirmative action. So somebody has asked, how long does it take for affirmative action to turn into resentment and effectively ends up leading to discrimination? What do you think from a libertarian perspective? That's my big argument in against affirmative action in the United States. Because, for example, we have a system where at many colleges, um, affirmative action has been upheld as legal by the Supreme Court in the United States for now. And we have a system where a a person of one race can get accepted to a school on average with 300 points lower uh, on the SAT than a person of another race. And ironically, the biggest victims of affirmative action are not white people. They They are Asians. And so Asians have become very resentful and angry about it and very opposed to affirmative action because they get screwed over for being such a well, hardworking and successful segment of our society, but they have to score 500 points higher or whatever. I'm not, not citing the specific number, but a lot higher to get accepted into a lot of these private universities than an African-American person would. That's unjust because for all you know, that African-American person, that individual had a private tutor and a wealthy family. And that all you know, that Asian-American person uh, was poor and worked three jobs in high school. Like you can't take broad notions about groups and then apply them through discrimination against individuals and expect a fair outcome. I totally agree with the questioner 
that that will fuel resentment and divide because it is here in the United States. That is currently happening. Uh, and that's why what we need, especially from the government and especially in society at large, is a race neutral society that treats everyone with equal dignity and respect. And then in the long run, discrepancies will even out. Yeah, it's very interesting that I was reading somewhere and uh, I think it was Howard, if I remember correctly, where they actually made like pretty racist comments like oh, they have personality issues, Asians in general. I was like, what? Uh, like, you basically made a sweeping statement about all Asians now? <laughs> personality issues i mean is that your idea and because they had to come up with some imaginary criteria and they're like okay in this oppression olympics worldview we're gonna put you in the bad personality area and i was like you know that's like the stereotype asians are bad drivers okay there you go <laughs> i would honestly prefer um they should almost have applications where they don't even know the race of the person they're reviewing mm -hmm. yeah yeah and then Maybe, maybe in an ideal world, it would happen, but not in the oppression Olympics worldview. It's no, <laughs> I agree. I and but that's part of the problem. With I'm very against kind of the the woke left wing identity politics. I think it's corrosive. I don't think it foments progress. I think it foments yeah. foments divide. So I agree with that question. Yeah. So yeah, it's like religion making a comeback, albeit this time religion has no option of redemption. That's all it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot more cult like. Too. Yeah, it's, it's like a cult. So somebody has asked, well, what are your opinions about private militaries or private intelligence companies? Obviously, you're not anarcho, right? So no. you would say, yeah, so you would no, say no. I would say no to private militaries. That's the government's job is to have a strong defense. The problem is that our government in the U.S. doesn't do defense. It does offense. So we're, mm -hmm. we're invaded and in, we have troops in, you know, dozens of countries. We've started all these wars. I don't support that, but I do support a government military that strongly defends the United States of America and its national security. But that's got to be done by the government, not not private. You have a free rider problem uh, that mm -hmm. makes it impossible to do anything like like that through a private basis. So two questions, and I think they're interrelated. So I'm going to ask them together. So, so somebody has written, the government should not interfere. But what if radical organizations spread illiberal ideas in the society to influence people and then say, that's what people want. Now I'm going to put it across to you in a, a very tangible way. Now, a lot of people are ignoring this. I don't know why, but I think the biggest threat to freedom, in my opinion, is social media now. These giants, social media giants are in a weird way becoming the biggest threat to liberty that we actually have ever in our life. What, what's happening is that people are not willing to understand the premise on which these social media companies are based, right? And they are based on a very clear-cut uh, outlook that we want to create addicts. Now, when I consume alcohol or when I consume cigarettes, at least I get a statutory warning, right? That alcohol beyond a certain level is, a, you know, it's very harmful for me. Or it, I don't know about America, but I remember in Canada and in India, whenever you buy a cigarette packet, it has those ugly looking pictures of yeah. your lungs uh, out there telling you that, oh my God, you know, the, it's a bad thing. But with social media, there is no statutory warning. They, they basically are, you know, premised on the function of creating addicts. Now in a situation like this, what if these social media companies push you to certain ideologies? Let's take the ideology of social justice. What if they selectively push society to this? How does a libertarian tackle that then? Um, so there's two kinds of, there's, 
Two questions. I'll tackle them both. The first question, what do you do with the illiberal rise of ideas, is a very important question. The problem is that um, I truly believe sunlight is the best disinfectant. So the spread of illiberal ideas, you combat that by debating and fighting against them. Because if you take the approach, well, okay, some ideas are so bad, the government has to move in and stop them. That is a naive approach because as in the United States, we have the First Amendment, and I strongly believe in it. Uh, and that's because if I take that approach to stop communists, and I think communism is a terrible idea, or to stop Marxists or something like that, well, I'm not going to be in power forever. And the very next time that, that a Democrat wins office, they're going to persecute who they think is ideas are beyond the pale. Uh, and that's going to be me or it's going to be someone close to me and eventually it will be me. So that you really have to have, in my opinion, a totally value and idea neutral government that allows for all speech. And then you fight it out in the court of public opinion and you fight the battle for ideas and you win it. Uh, and, and that's what you have to do, because any sort of censorship, even when it's censoring really horrible ideas, is going to backfire and it will never stay constrained to truly um, beyond the pale stuff. The, the second half, the social media question is tough because social media companies are bad uh, in a lot of ways. I don't disagree with you. I tend to think, though, that government would be worse. So having government in control of the internet frightens me more than having Apple and Google and Facebook in front of the in, in control of the internet. Not saying it's great, but I think governments have no private company has ever committed a genocide or rounded up people into camps using the surveillance state like the Chinese Communist Party is doing. That just can't happen. And all, so I guess the problem with social media, one, there's the addictive element. I acknowledge that. But the other problem is there's something called a network externality uh, where imagine how hard it would be to start a competitor for Facebook because mm -hmm. everyone's already on the other one. That's called yeah. a network externality. And that is a problem that makes the market less competitive than a normal market. And, yeah. and less the less competitive a market is, the less it is good for consumers. That's just a fact in economics. So that is a problem. I agree. I don't think social media is perfect. Um, I think it's got a lot of problems. But I'll push back on two things and I'll say having the government take control of it would be far worse. And two, we still have individual agency. So I have felt addicted to social media at various points in my life, but I've also now really rolled it back and got it under control just by taking it off my phone, only checking it at certain times a day. And I, I know it's addictive, but I think most people are capable of still handling it. Fair enough. One last question on China, which is uh, I wanted to keep uh, the China question in the end. So very good question, actually. How would libertarians try go about and punish China for flouting WTO norms? That's a good question. Right. Uh, I'll give you an example. Sanction individuals. Sanction. Um, so I don't believe in a trade war with China where we slap tariffs on goods and then Americans have to pay higher prices and have to pay for them. I don't support that. But for example, sanction Chinese Communist Party of regime officials or business people who are doing bad things, like freeze their bank accounts, their assets, punish those individuals. I don't believe in a trade war, but I do believe in punishing bad individual actors. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. So obviously somebody had asked, what are your views on gun control? Obviously you had answered, I guess they joined later on. So yeah, you're pro guns, right? Second Amendment all the way. 
Yeah, Second Amendment for sure. So, that, uh, so what's your view on uh, the left-wing critique uh, when they say... Uh, okay, I have never understood this debate beyond a point. So they say the most violent cities in America are actually the cities with the most stringent gun laws, right? So let's say you have Chicago and you have a few other cities where... Uh, you know, getting a gun is kind of hard. But the counter to that from the left wing is that, oh, it is not that they get the guns in Chicago. They go to a nearby state, they get a gun there, and then they come back and then they do the violence. So what is the truth, Brad? Where where does the truth lie? The truth is not simple in that the correlation is kind of all over the place. Some states with very lax gun laws, like the state of New Hampshire, have very low um, like gun murder rates and crime rates. And yet some states like Vermont with very strict gun laws have very low crime rates as well. So it doesn't correlate perfectly. I guess what I'll say this is this. This is my fundamental view on the issue of guns in America. Um, You can't outlaw crime by definition. So every gun crime that's committed is already done because people don't care what the law is. And there are but and, and here's one statistic that sums it up. Guns have some bad uses in society. They are done to use some bad things. However, uh, guns surveys show that guns are used between 500,000 and 2 million times in self-defense every year in the United States of America. They are used in gun-related crimes about 250,000 to 300,000 times. So to me, guns, gun ownership and self-defense is a fundamental right, and it not perfect. Obviously, there's some bad things that can happen, but it is a net good for American society. Yep. I'd agree with you on that one. I've always been fascinated by the Second Amendment in America. Like I always, uh, my my family doesn't like it. I always Let me me tell you one thing too. I, uh, I have a friend, close friend from college who was a Chinese immigrant to the United States. And she came to me and she said, Brad, you can have guns? (laughs) <laughs> and she was so flabbergasted. And I was like, yes, welcome to America. This is why we're great. <laughs> Man, uh, you know, the one thing that I want to go for once in my life when I'm in America, and I said, so recently I had a, a couple of uh, guys from the Urbane Cowboys podcast, and I told them offline, I was like, guys, whenever I come to Texas next time, if I ever come down to Texas, the one thing you guys are going to do for me is taking take me to a shooting range. That's something I'm so looking forward to. That's fun. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I guess it's time to wrap things up, Brad, before we go, just one last question. Can you tell everybody uh, any new projects that are coming up or maybe about your podcast? Because I know you have a podcast too. Yeah, absolutely. So everyone should follow me on Twitter, Brad underscore Palumbo, P-O-L-U-M-B-O. And then I just launched a podcast that everybody should check out. I'm interviewing kind of top U.S. uh, journalists, commentators, and politicians some big names on there so far. We've got we've had Glenn Greenwald and Blair White. We're going to have some senators uh, coming up soon that I'll be announcing. So that's the Breaking Boundaries podcast uh, with with Brad Palumbo on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. So you can search that and subscribe, and definitely check it out. Uh, and thank you for having me. I really I really appreciated it.
Pleasure was mine. All right, guys. So I've left a link to Brad's podcast in the description uh, of the video. And uh, if you're listening to this later on on the audio medium, you're going to find it in the description on SoundCloud, Spotify. Please subscribe to his podcast. Brad's an interesting thinker. You know, I've heard a couple of his discussions. They're really nice. You should follow him on Twitter. And on that note, uh, I'll take your leave. So if you like what I'm doing over here, please subscribe, share, leave your comments in the comments section. If you if you want to support the podcast, you can go on YouTube, become a member, and or you can go on Patreon and join the Patreon subscription. Until then, I'll see you guys next time. Namaste. Take care. Goodbye. Thanks.